Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And, and, and also carfentanil, which is many, 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 many times stronger. Elephant tranquilizer, basically, is now showing up on our domestic heroin supply. Uh, and it, because it's so much easier to produce, um, you can buy it on the dark web. It can be sent by the post or smuggled from Mexico. It's far more compact, and you only need a little bit of it in, in order to stretch your profits and dilute your, your heroin with it. And so that's what's killing people today. Uh, and the Trump administration's response has been to say, well, we're going to build a wall. Right? That, that'll stop the, the heroin from, from, from uh, Mexico, crossing from South America into the U.S. And I've said, you know, if that wall ever works, and I don't think it will, but if it does, what would happen if we managed to stop 30% or 50% of the heroin from entering the United States? It, there's a very logical market response, which is that dealers will use even more fentanyl uh, and, and other analogs um, to, to cut the heroin and stretch the supply. We're going to tell you the truth about drug policy reform. We're going to break the fourth wall. We're going to be honest. So we got this very special guest in Sanyo Tree, all the way over from Washington. He is the end of level boss of this discussion. And we've got Steve Rolls from Transform Drug Policy Foundation, as well as Neve Eastwood from Release Drugs. So let's just be honest. Let's get it all out there. And this is Stop and Search on Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, we're going to open up the curtains and we're going to go backstage. So, drug policy reform. What's it really like? We're going to talk third rails, and if you don't understand what that is, it gets explained in this episode. Breaking the fourth wall, so yeah, we're just going to we're going to open it up and just have this big discussion of the frustrations, the humbling moments, the hopes, the dreams, and everything else that comes with being in this sector. And thankfully, the voices that are involved in this discussion couldn't be more well-placed because they've got decades of experience between them. So we've got Sanyo Tree all the way over from Washington. We've got Steve Rolls from Transform. Drug Policy Foundation and Neve Eastwood from Release Drugs. All of them have just been tirelessly working on this subject for so long. And it's recorded live in front of an audience. So there's a little bit of feedback to start with. So bear with it. But our brilliant and famous producer, Nicky, he managed to get on top of it quite quickly. So, you know, just bear with us and we can chuck some rotten fruit at Nicky at a later date. So thank you so much for joining us. Let's get straight on with this. Please be involved in this. And also, things like Trump's wall, is it really going to be possible? And what does it mean? 
Is it going to disrupt supply? We talk about that. What's going on in places like the Philippines and the new shock and awe tactics that are coming out with, with drug wars? All of this is discussed. So let's get straight on with this. We couldn't be more privileged tonight to be joined by Mr. Sanyo Tree. Please give her a round of applause. And this is why we did this, because we just had to make the most of Sanyo being over, because this is just such a rare occasion. We had a bit of a, um, by the way, I think we can press record. I'm sorry about that, Nick. I'll just kind of go straight into it being a podcast. It's supposed to be relaxed. But um, on Twitter, we was having a bit of a conversation, and I love what you said, Steve, that Sanyo is like the end of level boss of drug policy. You just do not mess with Sanyo, because you have, you've got such a way. <laughs> yeah, computer game nerd. I'm sure at least 50% of the audience get that. But um, it is. Uh, Sanyo has got such a way of presenting drug policy reform. You use analogies perfectly. One of them, which I'm going to get you to explain now, is drug policy is like a finger trap. Could you explain? I have one in my bag, but I didn't bring it on stage with me. But you've seen those Chinese or Mexican finger traps, right? And I use it as a lobbying tool in, in Congress or when I'm talking with uh, elected officials about how to communicate counterintuitive solutions. Uh, and so many of the problems that we face in drug policy are do have counterintuitive solutions, where the obvious knee-jerk reaction um, is usually the wrong one. Um, so the finger trap is a way of showing that your your first reaction is to pull, but the pull the harder you pull, the stucker you get, uh, and that's kind of like drug prohibition. And it's counterintuitive to think that you might have to relax a little bit and even push in a little bit, and that's how you extricate yourself. So there are different types of problems in this world, and we all know there are different kinds. But if you get people to realize, oh, this is one of those problems that has a counterintuitive solution, then they might take a few more moments to actually listen to some explanations. That's perfect because I think those those little hooks really get people into drug policy because I think one of the things that we struggle with is to get new audiences to drug policy reform. Um, do you think, Steve, that this is an area that we maybe need to improve on? Yes. <laughs> um, and that, as someone who's been doing it for, for, for quite a few years, um, I, you know, it's sometimes hard to admit that we, we, we haven't achieved as much as we perhaps could have done. Um, I think one of the things that um, uh, my organisation, Transform, has uh, done quite successfully in the last, in, really in the very recent period, is um, move away from just doing sort of uh, sort of more nerdy technical policy analysis. Now, obviously, that's very important. There's a very important role for that. And we're not going to stop doing it, but also to try and engage a wider wider audience. Um, by telling more human stories. Um, and we, we've, we've got this uh, initiative called the Anyone's Child Campaign, where we've got people who've been impacted by the drugs, drugs war who tell their stories, um, just you know, tell their personal stories. And it's very engaging. Um, it operates at a much more sort of gut, emotional level. Um, and they, these are people who don't speak in kind of technocratic uh, sort of civil servant language or sort of talk like a a dull policy briefing, which is what I tend to do. Um, they, they, they talk in language um, at an emotional level that a wider audience can engage with. Um, and, you know, if you have parents, if you have people who are not the usual suspect, who are not advocates and they're not um, policy wonks or, or sort of campaigners or, or even drug users, um, 
the unusual suspects saying, uh, telling stories, often quite harrowing stories. You know, this is what happened to my child who died of an overdose or, my, uh, you know, my child ended up in prison. Um, we have been harmed, not just by drugs or even not even by drugs, but by drug policy, by prohibition, by the war on drugs. It's impacted on me personally. And when they tell those stories, it engages a whole new audience. So we've then been able to tell our story and talk about drug law reform in women's weeklies and the Daily Mail and um, on, on the sofas in, of, of breakfast TV shows. So we've actually been able to reach out to a whole new audience by doing something that was kind of against our instincts, which was to you know, engage at a more emotional level. And I, um, I've been very gratified to see how effective that that's been. And, and uh, you know, we're not the only people doing it by any means, but it's been, it's been an interesting journey for me and for our organisation to evolve and move in that direction. It, you know, that, that sort of story, um, it engages people in a way that just, you know, a, a graph or a bar chart or a dull person like me saying dull things doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do. And it, you know, it gets in the tabloids, it gets in the mirror, it gets in the sun. Um, and it really, really works. And it's, you know, so, so medical cannabis in the UK now feels like it's within touching distance. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're within touching distance of victory on that on that specific thing. I think mainly because people like the United Patients Alliance um, and others have uh, engaged in telling human stories, telling personal stories, rather than producing yet another 40-page briefing on all the, uh, you know, sort of uh, meta-analysis and review of all the medical evidence for medical cannabis is effectiveness on multiple sclerosis but you, oh it's a sick kid Ooh, I'm, I'm listen. so it, it, it's working and it, that that i find is quite an interesting development how important do you think that is sanyo of humanizing that dialogue because this is something again you're really good at we've seen recently bernie sanders share a video that specifically of you and some amazing sound bites within it and i think this is why we always look to you as, as this icon of drug policies because not only do you know all the policy wrong stuff but you know how to address that and get that delivered. I'm glad the lights are low so you don't see me blushing, but um, I think you know, uh, people relate to stories and they can remember stories. Uh, and I can't believe I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote Neil Tennant here, uh, but um, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and album-oriented rock was the thing, right? It was all about respecting the work of the artist, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I heard this interview with Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys. And he said, you know, the thing about pop music is that's what matters to people. That's when you're on your deathbed and you think back to your 20s and 30s or in your whenever you're going to remember that catchy song um, that 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 still sticks in your head all these years later. You're not going to remember the fourth cut of of Led Zeppelin's third album uh, or, or any of that stuff, right? And so people relate to to if you it doesn't help if people don't remember the data that you give them or or they don't write down the your policy prescriptions word for word. It's not like a, an academic exam. You actually want people to relate these stories to other people because ultimately it means they have to, you want them to contact their legislators, their community, and pass on uh, that, that, that knowledge. So I look for ways to explain things using uh, different analogies. Sometimes I'll do two or three analogies to explain one problem so that it, if you don't get one, then you'll get the other. Uh, but it has a way of breaking down the argument so that you can reassemble it in your own words um, that that is relevant to your life and your community and your experiences and, and make that argument because now you have ownership of the argument rather than can I recite what so-and-so wrote in some paper uh, or not. 
I think, Neve, this is where you are quite a good person to speak about because what release does has been quite clever because not only do you do obvious uh, paper policies and things like that, but also your outreach has been fantastic because you managed to tap into almost like a rock and roll centric position with, with Caroline Coon being the, the founder where you've got your T-shirts, Nice People Take Drugs campaign. And most recently, the Museum of Drugs, which was last year, which was just amazing. Do you think, again, it's important to get those human connections in there? Um, I think that's vital and it, it's very much the kind of grinding of the um, of my organisation release. Um, so our, we, we have a team of lawyers um, and the lawyers go out every day to drug treatment centres across London and see people who have experience or are experiencing problematic heroin or crack cocaine use in the, in the main. Um, and the issues we help them with are around housing, welfare benefits, um, debt, those kind of social issues. And I think this is very much in recognition, and it's a principle that we work to, is that drug policy actually really isn't about drugs. Um, it's much more about social control, and it's about controlling certain groups. So when we go back to the human stories and the sectors or, or the movements, um, inability over the years, I think you'd agree with us, Steve, um, to connect with those who are most impacted by the drug laws. I think that's been a huge gap in our work. Um, so we constantly are trying to focus on talking about drug policy through the prism of uh, anti-poverty issues. It is the poorest in society who are criminalised and who are damaged by these drug laws, but also through a racial justice lens as well in recognition that black people, people of colour in this country as in the US are um, disproportionately the focus of drugs policing. So research that we have done and this is back to policy and I'll explain some of the problems, but research that we have done have found, our first report found that uh, black people were six times more likely to be stopped and searched for drugs despite the fact they use drugs at a lower rate than the white um, population and that sort of challenges the idea of black people committing crime. Um, our, our, we're going to do an update to that report. It's due out in the next month or so. And um, it's now nine, nine times more likely to be stopped and searched. So despite the fact that we have identified the problem three, four years ago, nothing has been done by either government or criminal justice actors to reduce that disproportionality. And in fact, it's got worse and it's driving racial disparity in the criminal justice system. But we've produced that policy work. We haven't got voices from the community talking about um, the issue from their perspective and their own lived experience. And the Museum of Drug Policy, which we hosted last November to celebrate the organization's 50th, really brought together a group of allies who could talk about the damage that's caused by policing poverty, really. So we worked with people from Black Lives Matter UK, um, from the sex workers activists group, uh, the LGBTIQA community. I'm glad to see Gay Men's Health in here tonight. Um, and others who uh, feel the, the particularly pernicious nature of the criminal justice system. And so coming the next 12 months to 24 months, we're going to do much more work with those groups. And I think it's really important that we treat it as a, a uh, cross sectional issue, that there is um, other groups who are particularly feeling the, the, the weight of the drug laws and, and using our research, we, we hand that over to them and say, this is the, the facts, 
now bring your voices to it and we'll support you to do that. So I think that's kind of the work that we'll be working on over the next few months. And the theme of tonight is breaking the fourth wall. You know, we, we all deal in drug policy, as I suspect most people in this room do. And it can be quite frustrating. You know, you, you, you've got your own sector that you're fighting or progressing. And quite often there's a polarisation now, isn't there? We're getting to the point where there's a lot of progress, as we said, medicinal cannabis is moving forward in this country, in, in the States. I mean, cannabis in general is, is getting just generally evolved and progressed, Vermont being the ninth state, which did it a very different way. Can you explain about what happened in Vermont? So Vermont actually went through the legislative process. So the elected officials, represent, representatives, had proper hearings. They went through you know, all this, and, and, they, and, they, and they have to stand for re-election. So this is new. They were able to do this in the open, uh, raising their hands, being identified, whereas in all the other states, it's been citizen ballot initiatives. And that's not allowed in all, all, the, all the U.S. Mostly the Western states, Washington, D.C., where I live, also did it that way. Uh, each time it's put directly to the voters, people vote with their feet and, and they, they approve these things, whether it's medical or, or adult recreational use. Um, but when politicians who have to fear about re-election and looking soft on drugs, um, even though I don't think that's an issue anymore in terms of, of cannabis in the United States, we have uh, definitely majority support now. It's at 60 to 64 percent in favor of legalization. And when you talk about medical, it's way up in the 90s. So but politicians, um, a lot of them tend to be older, and they have very reptilian brains, right? They learn the lessons from their youth and their uh, formative years in politics, and they think, oh, fire, burn, touch, bad, stay away. Uh, but it, and, and all these social wedge issues that have resonated for the baby boom generation don't really work with voters under 40 these days. So same-sex marriage, um, you know, the, no, one, no one cares about that issue anymore. It's not a big deal. And they, they're in favor of gun control, they're in favor of cannabis, uh, and all these other things. So, um, uh, but, but it's important that, that, you know, Vermont has shown that you can do this and still, uh, still get reelected. And on the other side of that coin, where I was going with this, there is talk now that Trump is looking quite favorably at certain policies across the continent, well, across the world in the Philippines, of this admiration for what a certain person is doing, which we've spoken about before on a, on a podcast. Yeah. Can you explain what the mood is on that, Sanyo? It, it, so Trump, uh, you know, he's acknowledged that it's probably unlikely these laws would ever get passed in the United States, uh, wouldn't pass constitutional muster, the idea of using death squads in the Philippines, for instance, or even uh, he, he pointed to Singapore. Uh, they hang people, so that, that, obviously that's worked. But they keep hanging people. Um, Iran has, you know, used the death penalty very liberally, and they're finally stopping doing that. But um, they still have millions of, of people you know, who, who are dependent on opioids. So obviously hanging people hasn't worked, but Trump has it in his mind that it, that, that it does. And he has his longstanding admiration for President Duterte of the Philippines. And Duterte, who came into power six months before Trump, um, has killed, by the most recent estimates, uh, 20,000 people most of them through extrajudicial killing, um, about a third of them uh, in, in, in police uh, resisting arrest, or about a quarter of them resisting arrest, uh, and they're gunned down by the police. But the autopsies usually show things like, oh, there are handcuff marks uh, on their wrists, and the gun they planted on the right hand was actually the, the left-handed person. Uh, and, and there's no serial numbers on these guns, so people are speculating whether the police are actually recycling guns as well. Uh, and, um, and then the vast majority are killed through hit, hit squads. 
Um, assassins very often hired by the police. It could cost as little as $400 or less to have someone killed. Um, and community leaders at the, what they call the barangay level, the, the community, the, the um, barrios, the, the neighborhoods, they have, they elect captains. And these uh, local units of government have been tasked with coming up with drug watch lists of reporting people they suspect of using drugs. And it could come from anonymous sources, anonymous texts, uh, gossip or whatever. There's no due process. They just come up with a list. And if you're on that list, uh, there's a good chance that you, you could get killed. Um, so it sets up all kinds of abuse. People can use it to knock off their rivals or people they have uh, grievances with or you know, petty jealousies from, from their school years or whatever. You can settle your old your scores that way. Uh, but also it, it gives tremendous power to the police, uh, which uh, there's a lot of corruption there. There's uh, lots of stories of kidnapping for profit, um, ransoming citizens, uh, as well as using hit squads. But what's really underreported, under I think, is the issue of rape. Uh, because the p- corrupt police, and this is by anecdotally happen- happening to a lot of younger, attractive women, where the police say, you know, your husband, your boyfriend, your son, your brother is on a watch list. And if you don't put out, uh, then they're gone. But I have the power to, 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 to remove them from that list or at least protect them. And so who is going to file a complaint after this, after she's raped? I mean, this is insane. So the data is just really not uh, good. Um, it's hard to collect data on this. And, and Trump's looking at this going, hey, what's not to like? Yeah, exactly. And Steve, while you're there, what, how much pressure does the US not put on us, but how much in the past they did, but how much now do they have an effect on our policy? I mean, they, they, they cast a shadow across the whole world, and I don't think it's just that's just drug policy. Um, actually, I think in, in key international forums, I think it felt like in the last, un, un, under the Obama administration, that their, their influence was waning somewhat. The, the, the appetite for a more kind of hawkish drug war was receding. Um, I, mean, I mean, policy may not have changed so much in terms of budget allocations, but certainly the rhetoric was changing. Um, and the, some of the bully, bullying tactics they used were sort of, winding down a bit and particularly since Colorado and uh, Washington legalized cannabis and I hope Sanho would agree with me on this it it felt like that their ability the the ability of the US to chastise other countries for for reforming their drug policies um, kind of diminished because they would have been you know they would have quite rightly seemed horrendously hypocritical so at the uh, UN General Assembly special session in, in 2016 for example the US were in many ways, surprisingly subdued. Um, and and in, in, in a lot of ways, it felt like they'd passed the mantle of the kind of drug war bullies to, um, to Russia and, to, and China. Um, and then Trump was elected, and suddenly, who knows where we are? Uh, Jeff Sessions is clearly a full-blown, old-school drug war lunatic. Uh, uh, well, you know... Maybe lunatic's not the right word. He, he, he was. Right. Oh no! Okay, <laughs> that's been confirmed. Uh, and, and 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 Trump is now, you know, publicly saying these positive things about Duterte, and you know their their way their their response to dealing with the opioid crisis and and sixty thousand deaths last year was to uh, talk about building a wall with, uh, wall on the southern border and just say no. And you, he's appointed Kellyanne Conway to head up the, the, the crisis response. 
and you're just going, I'm not convinced you're taking this very seriously and following the evidence. So suddenly it's all up for grabs. So I don't know. Trump changes everything. Um, it felt like things were moving in a positive direction under Obama, albeit at a somewhat glacial pace, but at least in the right direction. And suddenly there's been a screeching U-turn and everything's looking kind of grim again. Whether they're going to... I suspect the US doesn't particularly have the appetite, even if there's going to be some hardcore stuff happening domestically, I suspect they don't have the appetite to throw their weight around internationally quite so much, but who knows? In Latin America, there's more rumbling now about demanding results, as Trump says, uh, from these countries. We give them all these billions in aid uh, and a lot of the fight, fight drugs, and, uh, and they're not producing. So we need to claw back. And, and uh, Trump and his Secretary of State Tillerson um, have talked in the past about resuming aerial fumigations in Colombia, uh, which was a devastatingly ineffective and destructive program. So for, from 2001 to 2015, um, the U.S. backed the spray program where they used crop dusters to destroy uh, millions of acres of the second most biodiverse country in the world in an absolutely futile attempt to destroy coca without dealing with any of the preconditions of why people were, were, were growing these crops, which has everything to do with abandonment by the state, uh, lack of alternative uh, economic uh, possibilities, uh, no infrastructure, that sort of thing. And uh, so today there is as much, if not more, coca being grown in Colombia than when we first began spraying in 2001. That's staggering. So it's obviously you can't coerce your way out of this problem, which is what they want to keep doing. And there's a universal aspect in that, which I think you're really good to speak about, Neve, is fundamentally, as Sonia said, this is about poverty. People are growing coca because they need to, you know. And I think you're faced with that, aren't you, on a daily basis in this country, that people are having to do things that, we consider in a society as illegal, bad, immoral, but at the end of the day, survival, isn't it? Absolutely. And just on Trump and how he'll act internationally, I think you know the relationship with Russia can't be overlooked, um, and that's going to play. You know, they re- he he doesn't even need to hit play hardball; just acquiescing to Russia and the Middle Eastern countries is enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, poverty plays. A huge role. I mean, drug use is ubiquitous throughout society. Every class, every race uses drugs. Um, But as I said previously, it's only certain people who feel the weight of the drug laws. Um, And that's largely because, you know, if you're a problematic drug user and you live in an inner city area in poor housing with little options, you know, you're very visible to the state. You know, you're, you're surveilled all the time. I mean, we know that there's heightened surveillance in inner city areas. So again, research that we did looked at patterns of drug policing across London and we were able to see that in terms of intensity of stop and search for drugs, high levels of stop and search, that occurred in inner city areas in areas of deprivation, where the higher rates of racial disparity were occurring in affluent areas, which speaks to this issue of social control. And more broadly than that, like I think there is, and especially with the, the, the rise of the conversation of um, legal markets in the US around cannabis, like there's a question for us around communities that are dependent on the drug trade. You know, yeah, okay, it is an illegal trade, there are harms associated with that trade. But for many, it's the only realistic income that they can get. You know, if you're growing up in a crappy sink estate and your choices are the army or drug dealing or the dole, you know, it's quite a rational decision to make. 
you know, who wants to go to Afghanistan or other countries across the world and put their lives at risk. So many people get involved in the trade because of economic desperation. And I think there is a big question in the drug policy reform movement about what kind of regulated market are we advocating for? Because we should be, if we, if we and my organization does come at this from a social justice perspective, is to talk about markets that bring in those who have been most oppressed by drug prohibition. So I think there's some responsibility, and I, and, and I don't know what you think, Sanho, um, but, but I think that is still quite a nascent conversation. I'm not sure that a lot of work's been done on it. I know the Californian model has been good. And it's, so, for example, in Colorado, for example, and Washington, you're excluded from being involved in the market if you've got a previous conviction, a cannabis conviction. That's ridiculous. You know, the, 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 this is a an industry where knowledge and experience are important. You'd want to harness that. And California, thankfully, has recognized that, not excluded people from um, being involved in the trade if they have a previous record, um, but also to money that is raised from taxes from the uh, legal trade will be put into communities that have been uh, disproportionately affected by prohibition. So there's positives, but I think there's so much more work to be done about what does a market like that truly brings in people who have experience, but also who need that income. Because what happens to those communities if we end up with a regulated market that is that those who benefit from it are, you know, already quite affluent, already doing all right in life. You know, what does that mean for them? We then leave these communities that are living in poverty in even more um, desperate circumstances. There's a, uh, I, I've actually been gratified to see that there seems to be, and I'm interested to hear what you've got to say about this, I know, but that there seems to have been a, an evolutionary trajectory in the States, in the US, uh, as that's happened. So it's moved from Colorado where you can't get it, the, uh, you can't work in the industry if you've got a conviction, through to California where you absolutely can, through to, I think, Massachusetts, the, the commissions working on that now are, are probably the sort of gold standard. And they're actually giving licensing priority to people with convictions, so they're actually the people with convictions are now going to be able to jump jump the queue, um, and and issues around reparations and, and and investing in in affected communities are absolutely central to the whole model they're developing. So it's good to see um, that that discourse is not on the margins anymore. It's very much at the, at the heart of it, and I, I think everywhere else has got to look at that and and and, and learn from it. I think, you know, the, in the United States, the states were always meant to be the laboratories of democracy, the 50 states, that you would try different policies in each state and, and the best ones would be replicated and so on and so forth. And that's been happening. Uh, Colorado, I don't want to be too critical about Colorado. They were the first out of the gate and they had to get a lot of bits and pieces right. And there was no blueprint for this, I mean, other than your blueprint, of course. But, but um, <laughs> there was no, you know, U.S. blueprint for how do you actually go about doing this. And so they had to be very careful about it. Uh, they were a little too conservative in some ways, and they were a little too loose in other ways, in my opinion. Um, and so now other states are looking at that data and balancing it out. And so California is, one, is a wonderful example. Um, it, the, 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 the initiative in California allowed people to uh, apply to have their criminal records expunged for past marijuana convictions. Uh, but it, was, uh, it depended on, on, on the person going to apply for this. But some... Uh, uh, states, some cities in California have taken it upon themselves to just give a blanket, uh, you know, just wipe their, their slates clean. Um, so I think that's a good start. 
uh, and setting, of course, setting aside uh, licenses for, for minority-owned businesses is, is great. Um, and there are other models. So in Washington, D.C., where I live, and in Vermont as well, um, it, there, there is no tax and regulate model. It's legal to grow. It's legal to gift. Uh, but it's not legal to sell. Um, in D.C., we did it by accident. Um, the idea was that we were going to, it was a two-step process because it was a ballot initiative, which won by about 70%. Fantastic uh, turnout, and uh, and and that was only to legalize growing and and using, because you couldn't uh, put revenue uh, initiatives uh, on the ballot, and so the city council had unanimously agreed that as soon as we passed this uh, by popular vote, they would follow up with a tax and regulate model. We could have stores and and licensing and all that, uh, but then the Republican congressman from Maryland. Um, and D.C. is a colony, by the way. It's not a state. Uh, we're governed by the – we have local government, but the Congress of the United States, who we can't elect or unelect, has veto power over our budget. And so this Republican congressman, climate change denier, a Trumpist, uh, he puts an amendment into the appropriations bill saying Washington, D.C. may not spend a penny to uh, implement any kind of taxation or regulation. And so uh, ironically, this guy who, want, who is a prohibitionist, um, actually gave us a libertarian wet dream. We have legalization without regulation. <laughs> you know? uh, and the, the, the U.S. attorney has been um, fairly decent about it. So even the pe- people who have been arrested for violations, they're not prosecuting. Uh, and that's the way it should be. Um, but I would ultimately like to see some way for people who uh, don't grow or don't know how to grow or can't grow because they live in rental units and their lease is prohibited, um, be able to access it. Because right now they're buying on the black market. Um, which is fine. Please aren't really, uh, unless you're really egregious about it. So there are these um, pop-up uh, uh, exchanges and, and various businesses where I will sell. They say well, I will sell you a postcard for fifty dollars in exchange. Uh, uh, you know, you this postcard, and I'll give you a little bit of cannabis as well, um, or a ribbon or a sock. They're selling all kinds of ridiculous things to get around that law. Uh, but if you advertise it, if you're too prominent, then the police will, will pay you a visit. And I, I, I think it's amazing what's happening in California and Massachusetts, but I do get concerned that it is a particularly a U.S. experience, not least because you know, racial justice organizations in the US, U.S. have really embraced the issue of drug policy reform. You, know, you all know um, Michelle Alexander's book, you know, The New Jim Crow, which calls out the war on drugs in the U.S. as a kind of, um, well, as a, a replacement for Jim Crow as a form of repression of the black community and people of color. Um, and that when we look at Canada, for example, we're not seeing those same kind of conversations of bringing people into the trade who've been affected by the trade in Europe. It's a very kind of non-issue. So, you mean, I, I think in the U.S. it's a particularly unique perspective, but it's how we outside of the U.S. who are working on this issue make sure that that's constantly part of the dialogue. Um, because otherwise, like in Canada, you know, when the laws come in, it could still be people of poverty and people of colour who, repre- who are oppressed as a result of, you know, a, a new form of prohibition. I mean, there are obviously positives. I'm not trying to, you know, close down the idea that a legal market in Canada is not a great thing, but just it's, it's constantly our responsibility to keep pushing that forward. Yeah, and, and, and things can go wrong. There are other, there are other um, not sinister is not the word, but there are other pressures which are not necessarily good and i think that the the pressure of big big business and big money 
now encroaching into the markets in, in the US and Canada is not always a healthy thing, especially if the reg- regulation is inadequate. Um, and, you know, things can go wrong. Things can go very badly wrong. Look, in Ohio, I mean, do, do, oh, t- tell us what happened there. It was an absolute shit show. So Ohio does allow citizen ballot initiatives. This is two or three years ago. Uh, and uh, But it's very expensive to get enough signatures to put it on the ballot. And so you need a lot of money to do that. And so there was a, a group of wealthy uh, and opportunistic people in, in, in Ohio. Wasn't there a dude from NSYNC? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forgot about him. One of them was from a boy band, uh, people, policy expert. And, and also uh, people who are arch conservatives who never supported cannabis reform, um, and, but they saw an opportunity. Uh, and this, so they wrote the initiative and got it uh, to, to, in such a way that um, they would give them a monopoly uh, to have, I think, 10 businesses uh, or, or a certain number of uh, businesses, th- th- them and their cronies, that would be allowed to have a monopoly on this industry uh, in exchange for legalization. Uh, so imagine if the development in the United States, if, um, uh, if tobacco had developed this way. I mean, we would have a new, we would have an aristocracy by now. Well, we do, but, but a formal one. <laughs> uh, if, if those families had a monopoly on tobacco. For generations. This goes what you were saying, Dave, isn't it? That any reform model that we have needs to be all-inclusive, so we're not actually shopping out the people that have been involved in this from step one. Do you think there is a danger of doing that if we do get reforms here? Well, when we get reforms here, because I think, well, I'm going to say there's an inevitability, but, you know, there's, by all means, I'm going to be optimistic about that. Um, but do you think we're going to be looking to other models that have been before us to see how we can best do it, or do you think we're going to go monopoly and typical capitalism and everything that comes with that? I hope not. Um, I think, I mean, this is where organisations like mine and Steve's are, are, are so important and, and others like The Loop who've been working on harm reduction initiatives across um, the country. Um, I, I think what's, I think it's hard, you know, like we're all tiny, tiny NGOs with tiny budgets, you know, up until seven years ago, would you agree, Steve? You know, it was still seen as a very much a third rail issue. If we went on the news talking about it, you know, often we'd be treated like, you know, people who just wanted to legalise drugs so we can use it ourselves. You know, it, it wasn't given the kind of gravitas and weight that it deserved. I think that's changed largely as a result of a number of factors. But, you know, for example, senior ex-politicians, always ex, but have come out through things like the Global Commission and supported drug policy reform. So that's given it that gravitas. About four years ago, you know, so we started getting treated with respect, but then we got started to get invited out to dinner by um, people who had hedge funds and other complex economic jobs or gambling jobs I don't understand. Um, so I think there is a risk. And I know that we're all very live to it. And I think all we can do is continue to bring forward the evidence for proper reforms, reforms that are inclusive, reforms that are based on principles not of free market or commercialization, but reforms that are based on principles of equality and human rights. Um, but I also think we have to be realistic. In my utopian world, you know, we'd be socialists and capitalism would be over, but that's not the case. Um, so I think we have to be realistic that we, we will have lobby, lobbyists involved in this. Um, but I think that then what we need to do is, is build coalitions with racial justice outfits and work with politicians who care about issues 
from a perspective of making society better and who are less inclined to be um, influenced by big business. But that's hard. You know, I think it's just being live to it. I, mean, I think one of the most um, egregious hypocrisies that we see at the moment around medical cannabis, for example, is this push for a uh, legal market access to cannabis. It doesn't even have to be a legal market established here. And access to importing um, medical cannabis from Amsterdam or from Holland, for example. And, you know, you see the, the Minister for Drugs, Victoria Aikens, Sarah Aikens, getting up and, you know, saying there's no medical benefits, this government will never support medical cannabis. And all the while, her husband, who owns British Sugar, has a licensed GW Pharmaceutical, so provides land to grow cannabis and makes money from that. And in Parliament, she'll get up and say, drug dealers are the scum of the earth. I was a uh, prosecution barrister. I know the damage that they can do, which is rubbish. Um, you know, there are good drug dealers, like there are, are there good businessmen? Anyway, um, so our hedge fund guys. So I think it's being lied to it and it's calling out the bullshit when there is bullshit, which we've all been doing around this quite loudly, um, but also to constantly um, pushing for a policy that will give opportunities to, um, to those who are um, currently... Uh, dependent on the trade. And I think some of the smaller models are interesting. So I think things like cannabis social clubs in Spain, for example, that we can learn from that are much more kind of at a local level. Um, and Steve and I did some work on this with the Liberal Democrats report and talked about creating uh, markets that were regionally based rather than nationally based and not allowing uh, licenses to be owned by one company across regions. So everything that you can do to kind of make the, the trade a more kind of local, friendly farmers market type trade. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the thing is with, um, uh, with, with legalization is that you've got this incredible opportunity to design a market from the ground up in the way we want it, to, the way we want it to be. Um, and at the moment, uh, that 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 control is still in the hands of, um, you know, the the, the 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 government and the public health authorities and and the the, the people who who I think have the public good at heart. If 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 control of that process starts to slip entirely into the hands of commercial interests, then you know, I'm, and I don't I don't have a problem with commercial interests existing in the market. They're obviously going to be there. People are going to make money out of legal cannabis and legal other drugs in the future. That's not a problem. Um, but if if they are in the driving seat, that market will look very different to if we, in inverted commas, are in the driving seat. Um, and and, and uh, we're not out to make money from it. We're out to sort of serve the public good. We're out to serve the public interest. We're, we're, our interest is primarily in public health and, and you know, community safety and maximising the benefits and, and minimising the risks of, these, of, of the use and of the markets um, rather than just maximising profits or, or maximising hedge fund turnover. But we've got, we've got a, an opportunity to, to get it right and I think we've got a, a huge responsibility to make sure that happens and I think uh, organisations such as ours will, will, will have failed if, 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 those, if, you know, if we spend all these years campaigning for, for an end to the war on drugs and then what replaces it is suboptimal you know it's gonna, it's never going to be perfect but it's we've got a great opportunity to get it right and we, i don't want to blow it and i think that's why my organization in particular calls for decriminalization first 
um, for all drugs. Um, I think it's, it's probably less of a relevancy now around cannabis now that we're seeing the regulated markets and can learn from those. But I think with the other drugs, we have to be accepting that heroin is not about to be regularly regulated and legally available anytime soon. So one of the risks of the drug policy sector focusing on one type of drug, so like cannabis reform, fails to recognise the harms caused to those who use other substances. So for us, the first step is let's stop criminalizing people who use drugs and cultivate drugs for their own personal use. Let's start there. And then let's start to talk about the different models because at least we reduce some of the most significant harms faced by some of the most marginalized in our communities. What is the appetite like, Sanyo, in America for decriminalization, but also you're seeing a massive issue with opioid and deaths. What is going on with that situation? Actually, the study after study uh, shows that um, states that have legalized marijuana have lower rates of opioid overdose and, and misuse. Uh, and a lot of people um, have talked about how it, cannabis has helped them deal with their pain issues without using opioids. Uh, and now, now it's it's a it, I mean it really is a crisis. Um, not so much the the heroin itself, but the adulteration of the heroin. Uh, so fentanyl and its analogs are now quite prevalent in the United States. Um, Fentanyl is in, in, in mixed into so much of the heroin supply right now, and, and, and also carfentanil, which is many, 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 many times stronger. Elephant tranquilizer, basically, is now showing up on our domestic heroin supply. Uh, and it, because it's so much easier to produce, um, you can buy it on the dark web, it can be sent by the post or smuggled from Mexico, it's far more compact, and you only need a little bit of it in, in order to stretch your profits and dilute your, your heroin with it. And so that's what's killing people today. Uh, and the Trump administration's response has been to say, well, we're going to build a wall, right? That, that'll stop the, the heroin from, from, from uh, Mexico crossing from South America into the U.S. And I've said, you know, if that wall ever works, and I don't think it will, but if it does, what would happen if we managed to stop 30% or 50% of the heroin from entering the United States? It, there's a very logical market response, which is that dealers will use even more fentanyl uh, and, and other analogs um, to, to cut the heroin and stretch the supply uh, and increase their profits. You can buy uh, a kilo of fentanyl on the, on the dark web for about $5,000. And by the time you mixed it in with the heroin and sold it in the street, you can get about a million and a half. Uh, so it's a market response. Uh, and we're not going to solve this by a wall, and we're not going to solve it by, uh, by increasing uh, vigilance of the postal system, which is one of the initiatives now to, to try to stop it that way. Because if you do stop the fentanyl, then carfentanil is down the line. Uh, and it's going to make things even worse. So it's a lesson we should have learned all the way back from alcohol prohibition, right? Uh, the, if you were a bootlegger, a smuggler during alcohol prohibition in the 1920s, the last thing you wanted to smuggle was beer, right? It, it, it transformed a nation of beer drinkers and wine drinkers into a nation of liquor drinkers uh, because you wanted the most compact uh, and, 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 and uh, cost-efficient uh, form of, of drug, the iron law of prohibition. Well, I've got this phrase in my head, bang for your buck, which is just, which I'd like to think as an American phrase, because I'd like to think the British wouldn't make a thing like that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But we've got this issue as well, haven't we? We've got an opioid crisis where people are dying in unprecedented numbers. Fentanyl and fentanyl's only just arriving, and things could get really bad really quickly. I mean, I, I agree with that, but I also think that part of the fentanyl less in the US, but here, for example, in other countries, is a bogeyman argument as well. You know, it's another new epidemic. It's another new scare. And we can actually deal with a lot of these scares through public health responses. We could start to give people really good education. So as I understand, one of the big drivers for the deaths in the US is also um, counter um, counterindications with other medicines. So yes. when people are using like... Um, so it's a gabapentin here, and um, <clears throat> I think paracetamol plays a role too in the US to some degree when it's mixed, um, based on Carl Hart last week presenting. But essentially, we could give people really good drug education. You know, that's the first thing. Tell people how to use safely. You know, at the minute, the US in at Super Bowl halftime had an ad that was worth millions and millions of pounds of a girl who allegedly takes heroin. You watch her life descend. You know, her do- she leaves her dog behind. She doesn't care anymore. Life's, you know. And that's just an oblique just say no campaign. We need to start giving people real messages on how to use drugs safely whilst we can't get them pure legal drugs. Secondly, drug testing. Drug testing services like the Loop provides should be available, not only in clubs and festivals, and it's awesome it's there, but in city centres where people who use heroin and other substances can get them tested, where they can give them education. Because, you know, ultimately it's ignorance that causes a lot of deaths here. And the biggest ignorance is that of politicians who are absolutely refusing to give proper quality harm reduction education to young people and to people who adults who use substances and also safe injection uh, absolutely services so san francisco is slated to be the first city to formally adopt this in the united states other cities are now looking at this as well um, philadelphia just this last election elected a district attorney who is wonderful a progressive reformer who gets the drug war issue um, and has promised not to prosecute any of this stuff um, so elections do matter. And then heroin-assisted treatment. You know, give people pre- prescribed pharmaceutical-grade diamorphine. You know, 
that saves lives. I mean, the, the, what we've sort of described in the last few minutes is, is a kind of um, a platform of, of reform. So decriminalization, drug consumption rooms, drug testing, uh, heroin-assisted treatment, all of which would be really very easy to, to, to move forward on in the UK. Um, some of them are happening in, in a small scale, but, but the leadership on all of those things is not coming from central government. They're pushing back on all of them hard. Um, uh, perhaps with the exception of heroin-assisted treatment, but they're not providing any, certainly not providing any money for that. But they're, they're, they're pushing back on all of them. And the leadership pushing those things forward is coming from uh, local authorities and local police authorities. So in, in, in a sort of slightly unusual turn of uh, events, the police are leading the drug law reform debate in key areas in the UK now. And I, but I think on the heroin-assisted treatment, that's a really good example of where the drug policy reform and harm reduction movement can get it wrong. So, for example, I mean, the real evidence for it comes from Switzerland, which introduced it in the 1980s. And in order to get it, as I understand, through politically, what they said was that that treatment would only be available for people who had not, for whom other, other forms of treatment had not worked. So methadone, for example, or other opiate substitute therapies. So it only actually got made available for a very tiny cohort of all the people who were using heroin problematically. And so the evidence base has been built on that premise that it should only be kind of the last treatment option, not the first treatment option. And the same here with the riot trials, which were trials that were funded for a number of years, but unfortunately at the end of the trial, government refused to continue to fund. Even though though they were successful. uh, Even though they were successful. But again, it was restricted for those who other forms of treatment hadn't worked for. So if we're talking about actually having proper heroin-assisted treatment, it should be available to all as an option for treatment right from the start. But this is an example of where we've been, we've you know we've kind of tied ourselves up in a, in a knot. You know, it's a bit like your finger thing. You know, we 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 wanted to get it out so far, but then we've reinforced it back in again. You know, we've we've caught ourselves back in on that. And I think that's sometimes we have to be careful about how we advocate and what we advocate for and what we can learn from when we've done historically things. Not that we, any of us were involved, but, you know, learn about the dangers of advocating in a way that can create restrictions in the long term and that doesn't solve the problem. I, I always like to ask the question, where does the appetite re- reform come from? Does it come from the bottom up or the top down? Sonia, in America, what, with your finger in the air, what do you think is the appetite for reform? Is it coming from the groundswell of people that are seeing their loved ones die or is it coming from the politicians that are... Or is it a combination of everything? It usually comes from the bottom up. Uh, politicians, it, uh, Neve used the term third rail. I don't know if people are familiar with the third rail issues. Uh, it's a, kind of a DC term. Um, it comes from the subway system. Two rails carry the train. Third one is high voltage. If you touch it, you're dead politically. So in the US, third rail issues would be drug reform historically, uh, although cannabis is no longer a third rail issue in my opinion. Um, things like gun control, uh, U.S. aid to Israel, um, you know, soft on drugs, soft on crime, soft on terrorism. So no matter what you do, if you're a politician, if you vote one way or the other, you're going to anger, you know, the other half of your constituency. So historically speaking, they don't want to touch these issues. And so that's why we've had to use ballot initiatives to get marijuana legalized initially. Um, it, it's a sloppy way to do it. Um, and the original ones were poorly worded. So California uh, was first with medical marijuana in, in uh, 1996 with Prop 215. And it was written in such a loosey-goosey manner that 
um, by the time it was implemented, you could get doctors to write a note saying if it were legal, I would prescribe it, I would recommend it uh, for your condition. And that condition could be everything from um, ennui to boredom to <laughs> you know, insomnia, uh, whatever, lack of appetite, any excuse would do. And that's really, and, and that was important um, because it showed that, yes, you can basically legalize cannabis. And so California's had legal cannabis for a long time. It, it's not hard. You can find any doctor to write you a note, right, uh, for just about any, any excuse. Uh, but that, the importance of that is that it showed the rest of the country that you could do this and the sky didn't fall and that children continue to go to school and dogs and cats are still friends. And, you know, and, the, uh, and, and that it occurred to me today that um, just hearing about your debate here on, on medical cannabis and how it's not, it's not happening is, is just an outrage. But here you have an example of Washington, D.C., where you have this giant embassy full of staff people. What are they doing these days? There's just not a lot you can do. We've decimated our State Department. Policies are just crazy. They're going every which way, and they could be reversed in a tweet, right? So what do you do if you're an embassy staffer? What kind of intelligent reports can you write back about this nonsense? Uh, it's whatever Trump feels like that day. It's, it'll, it'll turn on a dime. So here's something they could do in the meantime. Study what's happening in Washington, D.C., where we've had legal cannabis for, for several years now. Um, have they noticed any changes at all? Do their children feel anything, anything different? No, it's, everything's fine. Um, and I'm not sure that your embassy would, would take on that responsibility because politically, who would you know, want to touch that one? But when they refuse, then you can go to the media because every you know, major media outlet has a bureau in Washington, D.C. Just have them look around, ask people, talk to people. Um, that's the way I think you can get earned media and, and uh, bring it back here. I'm going to take a couple of questions. Then we're going to wrap up a bit early tonight because of the weather, which must seem ridiculous to you, Sanyo, the fact that we have a few flutters and then the whole country just goes nuts. So has anybody got any questions? I've got one more for these guys. So if you can think about questions. So a point of honesty from each three of you. Um, when you go home at night, having faced drug policy up close and personal, does it get quite taxing? You know, you're faced with horrific tales all the time. You know, anyone's child, bereaved family members that have been through the mill on this. Is it difficult to deal with this personally? I mean, <clears throat> I think a lot of people in drug policy, because a lot of it is quite grim, um, they, they develop quite dark senses of humour. Um, there's a sort of, sort of gallows humour that pervades the, the drug policy um, world um, but there is also there is a real real genuine current of uh, optimism and positivity because um, especially for people who've been in it for longer than sort of five seven years when things started to, to really turn around uh, globally um, there's a, there's a real sense of change and a, tr a very very positive trajectory so whilst there is grimness and you know you, you, you read the reports from the philippines and you see the the, the 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 photos and the news footage from from the horrible horrific bloodshed in mexico and i mean i, I do a lot of work in mexico and we have a partnership with a mexican organization and i've i've seen it I've personally seen it um, and, and been involved with that and, and met, met people there who've, who've, who've experienced it. So it can be quite horrific. Um, but at the same time, change is happening. It feels like in most parts of the world, the trajectory of change is very positive. Not everywhere. Some places are moving backwards. The US, Philippines, we've talked about that. But you know, even in the US, it's, it's, quite, it's a very contradictory picture. 
Um, there, there's things things are seem to be moving backwards within the administration, but at state level, there's an awful lot of very positive things happening. So I can see beyond the grimness and find that actually I, I use it to motivate myself um, to, to help end that and 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 the positivity um, uh, overwhelmingly you know pervades everything I do, and I, so I, I remain optimistic. Sanya, what do you think? So uh, before this issue, uh, I've been working on drug policy reform for 20 years now. Before this, I worked um, as a diplomatic and military historian for six years, um, co-authoring a book on the decision to use the atomic bomb in World War II. And before that, I worked in international human rights. So um, dealing with grim stuff is not... (laughs) Maybe I'm attracted. I don't know. (laughs) I just thought about that. I'll put this in perspective when you ask that question. Um, I would like to work on something cheery for a while. But to see, but for the past 20 years, in the past five years, I've seen more change than the previous 15 years combined. And that does give me a lot of, 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 of hope uh, and energy. We're, we're finally, the wind is at our back instead of in our face. And, and Neve, I think Steve made a good point. Just as much as they're horrific stories, there's also beautiful stories of optimism and hope and unity, isn't there? How do you feel when you're dealing with this on a daily basis? Um, well, as well as the gallo humours, there's high levels of alcoholism in our field. <laughs> we like our drugs. I'm only joking, there isn't. Um, Single malt scotch here. <laughs> no, glass of wine when I get home. Um, I d- look, just to be frank, I love my job, I'm not going to lie. It is an honour to work on this issue. It is a privilege to work for an organisation that goes out every day and helps some of the most vulnerable. And, you know, there's nothing like when you see one of the lawyers has got someone who was street homeless housed. You know, you get someone's benefits backdated for um, the last year. And, you know, they've attended a tribunal where they've been turned down for their sickness benefit because some asshole who's employed by the government to turn them down has told them that they're not worth it and they're not entitled to it. And they cry because, you know, someone listened to them and believed them. And those little stories of human dignity every day makes you feel very proud to work in an organisation that can help people directly and more broadly with the drug policy reform movement, you know, I am honoured to work with such bright, intelligent, committed people who um, believe fundamentally in human rights, in equality, in anti-racist um, or in racial, racial justice. You know, that you don't get to go to work and do that every day. I'm not going to sit here and say it's miserable. It is a joy, an absolute joy. Life's shit, you know. There would be, there's much worse jobs to be doing. And yes, some of the stories are sad, but you know, you, you try to help people where they're at. And if you do that, then I think you can go home and sleep at night. I think that deserves a round of applause at least three. That's a perfect answer, genuinely. As, right, we've got a couple of questions. And again, then we have to turf out into the snow. Take one here first. How you doing? Um, <clears throat> I know at least Neve relatively well, but um, it kind of draws on a couple of things that were just being said about, um, well, actually about what you said about rough stories and things that you see up close. And I've never been to the Philippines, but I've read, obviously, what's going on and seen reports. And what's interesting, I, I always think, sort of in more philosophical moments, is that the kind of violence that Duterte is committing there um, is usually something you associate with political violence or some kind of, you know, rebellion that he's putting down or something like that. Um, but it's not. It's behavioural. 
So it's essentially a civil rights issue. It's a human rights issue. Um, and when I think about some of the people that Neve was talking about, some of the more vulnerable people that um, you know that I've met as well, um, and you see just how desperate they are, and you think like we're in the same country and society. <laughs> like, how can you possibly feel this desperate? And again, it, it makes me think this is a, this is a human, this is a civil rights issue, because you're not being treated the same as everyone else because of your behaviour. What ways can that be used? Uh, what ways can this be framed as a human and civil rights issue? Effectively, do you think to advocate to a broader demographic of people beyond those who just will be already interested? People like us, you know, is the question. How can it? How can that be used as a framework? What does that look like? Yesterday, I uh, I went to the Imperial War Museum, and part of it was the Holocaust exhibit, uh, and. I'm reminded of the slogan, never again, right? And, and everyone says it, everyone says, oh yes, yes, never again. And yet it's happening again, in the sense that what's happening in the Philippines, I would call a pogrom. It's a drug pogrom, much like the czarist uh, secret police waged in, in, in Russia and Eastern Europe in the 19th century, um, where you take a cornucopia of social ills, um, many of which are systemic uh, and, and, and structural, and they project it onto one small demographic. And it's an eliminationist ideology that if we just got rid of this one group, everything would be wine and roses again. Uh, and that's not the case, of course. Uh, but it, he's, President Duterte has given license, not just for the police, but for citizens and everyone else to dump on this group and to eliminate them. And Duterte has said uh, on television, um, you know, we're going to get these people, but if you have a gun, why don't you do the job yourself? I will back you up. And he's told that to his police as well. Uh, and so... <laughs> If there's anything to be learned from never again, it's that it's happening again, and, and we really need, need to mobilize. And, and just to add to that, I, I think it's also an issue of othering. You know, I, I, sometimes we talk about, you know, the damage of drug policy, but who does this work for? So, you know, I think, like, we have the Philippines, but also in Russia, the way people who uh, use drugs there, in particular who inject drugs, I mean, what we're seeing is a slow massacre in Russia with one in 100 adults um, HIV positive, as a largely linked to injecting drug use, and where there is no harm reduction, and where methadone is essentially illegal, and you're thrown in prison for years on years. I mean, so who does that work for? You know, I I, I often see similar kind of um, discussions around migrants. You know, that the problems in our communities and our societies are not as a result of government failing to invest in us, but rather it's these group of people. It's the drug users who are destroying your, your quality of life. It's, it's, you know, the migrants who are coming in and taking your job rather than saying, well, what are the structural problems? Why? This is your problem. This is Westminster's problem. You need to deal with it. But Westminster wants you to blame other people's society. So I think some of it is, you know, if we, if we come at it from a civil rights, human rights perspective, it's calling that out constantly um, and bringing kind of light to the story and, and, you know, good journalists showing some of those problems. And I think as a, a, a final note on that, perhaps, is that um, one of the things that's happened in the last few years, which I think is incredibly welcome, is that the... Um, some of the UN human rights instruments are finally being brought to bear on the drugs issue, having been very quiet for an awful long time, as indeed are some of the big human rights organisations. So Human Rights Watch has relatively recently taken a very positive position on drugs and called for ending the criminalisation of people who use drugs and legalisation of drugs. Um, Amnesty is, a, is imminently going to 
uh, take a, a, a very positive position on drugs at last and get involved in the issue. Um, but the UN, the UN human rights institutions are now bringing their attention to this issue. Um, at the at the UNGAS, at the UN General Assembly in 2016, the UN Office of the High Commission on Human Rights produced a, a, a devastating critique of um, the, the human rights abuses of the war on drugs and was very, very clear that criminalising people who use drugs was a, a fundamental violation of, of international human rights law, specifically the right to health. Um, and they, you know, they produced posters saying people who use drugs do not forfeit their, their human rights. And that was an incredibly powerful message, which had simply not been there before. So things are changing there. And, the, and one of the very useful things with human rights is that we do have a legal infrastructure there that you can use. So the uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court, is now investigating Duterte. And I, my guess, it, it'd be hard to avoid them calling for prosecuting him, I, I suspect, because he stood up publicly and advocated mass murder and vigilantism. And, you know, that is, uh, it is not a huge leap to, to note that that is a fundamental violation of human rights, i.e. the right to life. So things are moving and we do have a legal infrastructure to bring to bear on this. And it is finally, the, the, the cogs are finally beginning to turn. I think the ICC thing is a, it's a slow process. It's very important that it happened. And I think it's great, you know, it's a great, great step forward. And it's rattled his cage. I mean, Duterte's freaked out about this, but it takes a long time. And so the Afghanistan case, for instance, they've been working for 10 years um, and the enforcement, you know, so it's, 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 let's calibrate that a bit and, and not get our hopes up that it's going to happen right away. Symbolically. Yeah, symbolically, it's very important. But I think this is also about scapegoating. As you said earlier, drugs policy isn't really about drugs. It's about all these other things. Uh, and scapegoating comes from the Old Testament, right, from the biblical era, where the priest or the rabbi would, would whisper the sins of the village onto a goat, into a goat's ear, and literally drive the goat into a desert, and, and the village would be cleaned. This is what Duterte and others are doing with the drug war. It's just this people and this, the, these chemical substances get rid of that. Everything will be fine again. Um, 1998, when I first started in this, I looked at the uh, drug czar's uh, annual report. This is General Barry McCaffrey, who was Bill Clinton's drug czar. And the preface to that report um, called, you know, it was about the national drug control strategy. And it was such an obvious effort at scapegoating that I did a simple search and replace. I, every time he used the word drugs, I inserted the word Jews. And I'll post this on Twitter tonight. Follow me at, at Sanho Tree. But uh, but it reads like it's straight out of Joseph Goebbels. He's blaming this cornucopia of social ills on this one group. That's it. We've got time for one more down here. Um, thank you. I was very touched by your description of politicians as reptilian. Uh, the fact that I, I'm actually a, a senior local councillor um, <laughs> for, for the Conservatives in the London Borough of Harrow, which may actually end up winning in May's elections. Put that to one side. I was really interested in Steve's point about local authorities and police forces in the UK leading that sort of charge for change and reform. But what, as a sort of senior um, member, I haven't really seen much in the way of any communications um, or even sort of toolkits about how I can sort of engage. And a lot of my colleagues in authorities across the country, across parties, are interested in this kind of issue. We now control public health 
budgets. So we have actually direct responsibility and financial wherewithal to do things. And it would be quite useful to have a proper sort of toolkit and a thought through evidence base of what we can be doing and what we could be doing in local government to help advance that agenda. Um, and I think this is a, a really good opportunity to take that forward. Well, I mean, the, the, the first thing to say is that, that a lot of these pioneering uh, initiatives that are happening, whether it's the sort of uh, diversion schemes in Bristol and, and Durham, whether it's the, the attempts to open uh, drug consumption rooms in Glasgow and, and North Wales and, and, and elsewhere, um, or, or whether it's the, the drug testing or the, the what's happening is that you the, the, these pioneering local initiatives um, take assume the political risk, they 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 develop an evidence base. And slowly it, it, it builds. And then once, once that's happened, you can then start to uh, assemble what looks more like a toolkit, a, be, a best practice guidelines for local authorities to take this forward. And eventually, um, once, once a sort of uh, tipping point has been passed, the government can say, oh, actually, that's safe enough for us to now advocate that as national, national strategy. So, if, I mean, if you personally are interested in it, contact uh, myself or, or, or Neve and we can point you in the right direction. But those things are coming. I mean, their best practice guidelines are in the pipeline for all of those different initiatives. And, and there, is, there is already a good body of evidence and experience that you can, you can tap into. And it's great to hear that you're interested in doing this as a, a, a local council leader. Um, what we've seen today is mainly police led initiatives and then also to local actors within public health so not the council itself the exception to that i think is southampton council which has actually undertaken to do its own inquiry into the establishment of a drug consumption room nothing to do with the local health providers or drug treatment providers they've really just taken this initiative off so i mean again we're working with them now post them doing it and happy to put you in contact but it would be great to see much more council-led initiatives you guys have the power localism's great yeah yeah use it so just to quickly wrap up then so quick final word from each three of the panelists steve what do you think is in the in the future for us in this country where do you think we're going to go is there any kind of time frame where we can look forward to i think i think we're approaching a tipping point in this country where things could accelerate and change very rapidly um, I think if you look at something like the issue of marriage equality, even a couple of years before that happened, people would have not imagined that it was going to happen and, and, and the dominoes would fall as quickly as it did. So I think we could uh, approach certainly on in the local reform sort of we've been talking about, the, the harm reduction, the, the, the decriminalisation and uh, drug consumption rooms and drug testing. I think a lot of that is going to accelerate very rapidly in the next two or three years. Um, I think cannabis could move pretty quickly, uh, certainly within, within a similar time span. I think a bigger bigger move on other drugs is a, is a longer term vision but again i think it could all come crumbling down very far so i, I remain optimistic and I, I hope everyone else will join us and Neve, where do you think we're going what do you think is in the future um so again i i agree with a lot of what steve said um you know, I, I think one of the big issues and and the the previous questionnaire brought it up is the issue around austerity and the 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 huge squeeze on local authorities and public health to deliver services in a way that protects people's lives because we are in a crisis where drug related deaths are at an all time high but i think that crisis is also an opportunity for reform i think when people are stuck with 
a situation that they, one, feel is completely unacceptable in a 21st century compassionate society. And then secondly, that they can do something about it, that they could prevent these deaths. Uh, so I think, yes, we're going to see lots of change. It'll move fast. But I think a lot of it's coming out of the fact that some of the most vulnerable in society are dying. And we're going to let Sanyo, the end of level boss, have the final word on this. Thank you for coming all the way over from Washington, D.C. It wasn't for this, but thank you for making the most of it. So what, what do you think, Sanyo? What's the conclusion? Thank you. Uh, I, I think, you know, as, a, as an historian, um, if I were writing a book about the end of empires um, at the turn of the 19th, uh, 20th century, um, I, people would have said, that's crazy. The empires are the way of the world. They'll always be with us. And yet within a generation, they were gone or at least uh, crumbling. Uh, if I had written a book about the women's suffrage movement uh, at the at the beginning, and people said, no, it's going to take generations for that to happen, and it happened. Same with the civil rights movement. If I was writing about that in the United States in the 1940s or 50s, people said, that'll never happen. And um, by the mid-60s, we had the Civil Rights Act. And so the only thing I can guarantee you is it's inevitable is change itself, uh, and sometimes it's even for the better. <laughs> So please follow Transform and Steve Rolls on Twitter and follow their work. Follow Neve Eastwood and Release Drugs and everything they do. And of course, follow Sanyo Tree on Twitter and everything that he does. And please give a massive round of applause. And I do have to thank the guests once more. Thank you to Sanyo Tree, Steve Rolls and Neve Eastwood. Thank you all for joining us on that one, for being so open and honest and eloquent as well. I'm sure you agree. I want to thank yous, of course, I've got to do the producer thank yous to Tristan, Nikki and John. Thank you for all you do. You're amazing, especially when you're controlling feedback in awkward circumstances. Thank you so much. And my name is Ad for all the artwork you've given us. Thank you to John Harris at the Distraction Pieces Network for all you do for us and all those lovely quirky quotes and images and everything you do. And thank you for listening because without you we'd be nowhere. And yeah, we've we've done well on this podcast, haven't we? We've... We've had some big discussions, we've won awards, but we need to do more. We need to keep this conversation pushed out there and going. So if you can think of any guests that you want to hear, if you've got any subjects that you want addressed, let us know at UKLeap on Twitter, at UKLeap on Instagram, and our website and Facebook are UKLeap.org. And if you want to find me, then I'm at Jason Tron. And please do, feel free to suggest because it all helps. So on that note, let's go and edit the next episode because there's a few more in the bank yet, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true battles seldom stray up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.